Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Oklahoma Ghost Stories. I'm your host, Brad Heath. Special guest with us tonight, Dennis Francini. I'll go through Dennis's resume here in a second, but as you can tell, if you're familiar with uh, true crime cases here in Oklahoma and unsolved cases in Oklahoma, you're going to be familiar with this one. We reached out on Facebook. We asked people to tell us, do you want to hear us dive into these stories and these cases? Overwhelmingly, you said yes. And so the first one we're going to start is with the Camp Scott murders in 1977. Of course, we all know them as the Girl Scout murders. So we're going to dive into that here in just a second. Before we do, I want to mention to everyone our sponsor tonight, the Farm Actor Studio. They offer uh, acting classes for beginners and advanced uh, right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, the farm can be found on Facebook. Just search them, the Farm Actors Studio, or text ACTOR to 918-812-5858 for more information. We are excited that they are a sponsor with us, and um, they're doing some good things. So let's dive into the uh, broadcast tonight. Uh, this is one that I've spent many hours on in the last couple of months. Uh, researching, talking to various people. In fact, I've been blessed to have uh, spoken with um, Sherry Farmer, and she's the mother of Laura Lee Farmer, and she has uh, been been very generous and very courteous with her time. Um, but before I get too deep, let me introduce Dennis Francini. Dennis, uh, Air Force veteran, uh, also a, a OSBI uh, retired veteran there as well. But let me run through his resume real quick because I think it's important that we kind of set the stage for our guest here tonight. Um, he was assistant special agent in charge from 92 to 2016. He was an agent with the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations, OSBI, 88 to 92. Uh, he was a social worker with the state from 87 to 88, uh, a supervisor and a sergeant with the Detroit Police Department from 1980 to 1987. He's degreed from Central Michigan University as well as a graduate of the Detroit Police Academy and he served in the United States Air Force from 1966 to 1970. Uh, Dennis, we certainly appreciate your service to the country as well as your service to Michigan and the state of Oklahoma. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to give your resume because when we talk about a case like this, and this is not a case that you were a part of. Let me let me get that out now. That's right. That's correct. That's so, correct. So in 1977, where were you located? I was living in Michigan. You were in Michigan. Okay. And then when you come and move to Oklahoma, you don't become part of the uh, OSBI until when, 88? Yes, 1988. Okay. So, so this was not a case that Dennis worked on, but I think it's important that we bring Dennis in to – help us kind of sift through some of this information and you know if he wants to share his opinions on it uh, he's more than welcome to but as far as what we're going to show you and what we're going to talk about I wanted to have somebody in here with a resume that is just stacked with credibility because um, I think it's important that while I'm giving an opinion and Dennis is giving an opinion I think it's important that we have somebody in here who can um, bounce things off of and and, and can lend themselves to, uh, to to sharing some information. Um, one of the things, Dennis, that I think people get wrapped up in with this case is, and, and rightfully so, is that it's such a tragic 
and almost unbelievable scenario. Um, everyone knows Camp Scott was a Girl Scout camp, and someone took advantage of the fact that there were girls, young girls, camping in what should have been a completely safe space for them so that they could enjoy their limited time at camp and turned it into um, one of the worst tragedies, I think, in the state of Oklahoma's history. Yes. Um, we can't forget the victims in this case, and, and we're not going to really travel down the road of who did this or who was tried. We all know who was tried for this case. Um, we're not going to get into speculation as to who it may have been. We're going to talk about June 12th and June 13th. We're going to work through that information as best we can for about an hour here and uh, get Dennis's opinion on, on some of the happenings. Um, obviously, Camp Scott on the map here, you can see Camp Kiowa is where um, our victims were located. I'm talking about, of course, uh, Denise Milner, age 10, uh, Michelle Geis, age 9, and Lori Farmer, age 8. Um, as you can see, there's there's several camps. And Dennis, when you look at the map of Camp Scott, and and one, one thing that this illustration doesn't show, and, and I'm not sure who made this illustration, but I've looked at several maps, and it's, it, it's pretty accurate. Of course, distances is hard to judge with a map like this, but... Um, there are a lot of camps and there are a lot of campers there are so when i look at this obviously kiowa is a fairly isolated camp i think the arapaho camp osage up in the top i think all of those um could have been places where someone who is 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 lurking in the woods they, they could have hit any of these spots really yes there i mean they're all sitting on the edge of the very edge of the woods there, those heavily wooded areas where anything can be. Yeah, and you can see the staff house is located towards the middle, the ranger's house, the director's office um, is is down there as well, the great hall, the swimming pool, um, and, and we'll break down the Kiowa camp so you can get a closer look at it. And anyone who's probably watching tonight, you're probably very familiar with a lot of the details of this case. And I want to say this before we get in too deep. We are going to do our best to make sure that the information that I'm giving out is accurate. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to make a mistake or I'm not going to report on something that may be not quite as accurate as we would like. So if that's the case, um, I apologize now. Uh, I did a ton of research on this, and I read most of the trial. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm just a few documents from reading the entire trial. But we want to try and be as accurate as possible. So if we do make a mistake, don't hold it against us. Uh, we're going to do our best to get through a lot of material right now. So um, I think we should start with the victims. Um, and, and uh, you know, I want to do that, but, but I also want to set the tone. Let me do this real quick. I want to set the tone for 1977. So everybody kind of get your heads into what was going on in 77. It's the peak of the disco era. So just imagine that, right? That's what's going on. Um, 
January, Jimmy Carter is inaugurated as the 39th president of the United States. Rocky wins Best Picture at the Oscars. Uh, Toronto and Seattle play their first baseball games as a franchise. Star Wars is released. Uh, that's in uh, the 25th of May. A.J. Foyt, a few days later, wins the Indianapolis 500. Of course, June 12th, June 13th, we know what happens on those days at Camp Scott. June 13th also, James Earl Ray, Martin Luther King's assassin, was uh, captured after escaping from prison three days earlier. Uh, in July, we get the New York City blackouts, which was a big deal. The Alaskan pipelines completed. Um, in August, the Senate starts hearings on the MK Ultra project, which I know a lot of our listeners know all about the MK Ultra project. Um, David Berkowitz is captured. Good grief, son of Sam. Son of Sam, right? Yes. Elvis dies at 42 in August. Um, in Tulsa, Oral Roberts announces plans to build the City of God Hospital, known as the City Plex Towers now. Um, Leonard Skinner's plane crashes. Three die in that plane crash. The Cold War is still going on. We got the energy crisis, the gas crisis. It's the peak of disco, like I said. Number one on the charts is I'm Your Boogeyman by the Case, by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Get your heads, you know, we're not too far separated from Vietnam. That's right. In 77. Um, so that's something to consider, something to think about as we talk about the time period, the era of the late 70s. Um, Dennis, let's talk about our, our victims. Um, Denise Milner, age 10. She's the, she's the daughter of a Tulsa police officer. It's her first trip to Camp Scott, and we can tell by the letter that she wrote home and by the accounts from her from her uh, parents that she was kind of homesick and not really wanting to be at camp. Um, she was the only African-American kid on the trip. Um, and not, I don't think that played into the murders, but it's just a fact that a lot of people point out. Right. Um, a counselor, Michelle Hoffman, who was uh, 15 years old, she had rode the bus to Camp Scott and uh, kind of noticed her and uh, took it upon herself to befriend her and uh, kind of make her feel a little more welcome. They did tell her that if she wasn't feeling it or if she was homesick, she could call home. And uh, she was basically, you know, told, look, just like, let's get through the night and let's see what happens tomorrow. Because this is a new experience for a lot of these kids. Yes, they're just young, young girls. Yeah, young girls and... and uh, it's easy to become homesick, basically, is what we're trying to get at. Michelle Geis, uh, age nine, this was she's a returning camper. She's been here before, and now she's back. Um, she was from Broken Arrow, um, which obviously is just suburb of Tulsa, for those who don't know. Um, a fact about her is that she loved and had a passion for African violets, the flowers, and uh, it's, it's well documented that before she leaves home, she basically tells the family, you got to take care of my plants, right? <laughs> yeah. So age nine, uh, Michelle Geis, um, victim number two. And then victim number three is Lori Farmer. She's the youngest camper on the trip at age eight. Uh, and, and even at age eight, she was uh, the older sibling of uh, four uh, younger siblings. So um, she was the big sis, uh, even though she was the youngest one on camp. Um, she had just completed fourth grade at uh, Jinx Elementary School, and uh, she was she was going to celebrate a birthday in a few days after um, arriving to camp. 
Dennis, th th these three could have been any three at camp. Yes. Any one of any of these girls could have been in that tent. Right. And as you can see, going up on the screen here, um, we've got Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Geis, um, all three of our, our victims. And I want to make it clear that, that for me, for Dennis, for everybody involved, Aaron, our producer, um, th it's about them for us. Um, we're not going to solve this case tonight. We want to bring you some facts and mention to um, the public out there that we, we, we want their memories restored uh, and carried on. Um, we want this to be something that uh, celebrates their life and um, their families as well. So everybody, please, uh, let's, let's keep that in mind. The three girls didn't know each other prior to arriving at camp, which is probably common, Dennis. I mean, I would imagine... You know, Tulsa area, that's a decent-sized area. They, Of course they didn't know one another. Right. It's not That wouldn't be uncommon at all. In total, there were 27 girls assigned to Camp Kiowa. Um, that, that particular camp's layout is, a, is an interesting one, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, the parents were allowed to take a pre-camp visit to kind of inspect the facilities and look around. Uh, they did that on Sunday, May 26th, and June 2nd. Uh, both were Sundays. They had a couple hours each day to go and walk around the camp. And as a parent, Dennis, why is that something that you think is important that a parent go and check out the camp? I think it's it's good for the child to let know let them know that the parents are concerned about what's going to be at the camp, what they're going to be doing, whatever. I also think it's good for the parents because then they know kind of what's going on, what goes on, what to expect, uh, kind of the layout of things, yeah. uh, where everything is located. Yeah, and, and, and also to, to get to know the staff. Yes. You know, to, yes. To, to see who's there, to see who's around, to see, you know, how close is the Boy Scout camp? How how far is the the latrine or the swimming hole or, you know, wherever they're going to be going? And, and to look at where they're going to be staying. Yeah, I, mean, I think that would be really important for parents. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. So each camper was instructed to bring the following. They needed to bring four uniforms, four Girl Scout uniforms, some riding clothes, slacks or jeans would be fine, uh, two pairs of low heel shoes, and plenty of socks, um, boots, rubber boots, a raincoat, a hat, a bathing suit, a cap, uh, shoes to protect them from the stones that are in the rivers, um, a change of undergarments, pajamas, bathrobes, slippers, toilet articles, uh, towels, washcloths, uh, two heavy and one light blanket, which is important because one blanket gets wet, dirty, you change it out. Maybe you need a heavier blanket because it's a little cooler at night. Sure. Um, they were also told to bring two large or four small sheets for their bed, a warm sweater, a jacket or coat, a flashlight with extra batteries, a pocket knife and a drinking cup, all the things that you would think a Girl Scout or Boy Scout would be bringing anyway. Absolutely. Uh, they were also allowed, um, if they wished, they could bring a camera, uh, some extra film, not digital cameras back then. They had to have film, a laundry bag, pillowcase, a pillow, a broad-brimmed hat, a musical instrument if they wanted to bring one, if they played costumes, a notebook, a pencil, so that they could write letters home i think all of those items are ex basically exactly what i would expect to see in camp yes um there was a report that um 
and I'll, well, I'll get to that in a second. So let's let, let's talk about the campground itself. Um, the campground, uh, which is referred to, and Aaron, if you could bring up, um, let me see here. Let me see which one it is. Let's bring up uh, A4 if we can. <clears throat> the campground itself um, had eight tents, and typically uh, what's referred to as tent one is over here in the corner. Now, the, the, the counselor's tent here, down here at the bottom, was uh, sometimes referred to as tent one. But where the kids were, they a lot of times this map in particular refers to it as tent one. We are going to refer to the counselor's tent as tent one. So we go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And tent eight is where Michelle, um, Lori, and Denise were staying. Uh, there was a campfire area adjacent from their tent, a latrine as well, which should be kind of in that area and um, a larger building there. But as you can see where the counselors were, that tent is the only one blocked. The counselors that were in this tent, Dennis could not see across to their, to their tent. That's and true. That, that may or may not have played into the killer's plan. Who knows? I think the location of that tent probably does play into the, the killer's plan. I mean, it's, it's blocked here from the counselor's tent and also you've got this whole area back here wooded area where it's unlikely somebody coming from that back is going to be seen yeah and one of the things that i've always found curious about this particular tent is the direction in which it faces even the individuals in the tent can't they don't have a line of sight unless they go out of the tent there's no line of sight this direction right they're either looking this way at the tent next to them or this way towards the latrine. Yes. So if, if, if this tent's turned, maybe they have a line of sight down here. Maybe they have a line of sight behind them. Right. Um, there, there is a report, and I, I, I know this is going to happen on this broadcast. I know I'm going to get in the weeds on some of this because there's just so much to talk about. But I have spoken to an individual who was in tent seven, what we call seven, and uh, there is a report that someone, a man, shined a light into that tent. Um, and this is all speculation on my part, but I would think from the backside. Um, but who knows? But so there's activity around this area that's reported by her. And I'm not going to give her name um, until she gives me approval to give her name. And then we may try to have her on as well. But activity in this area and we also know that girls from all over camp are traveling back and forth from tents to the latrine yes so there's a lot there's, of activity there's a lot on. of activity going on so tent eight is located on the edge of the horseshoe as we can see uh it's it's definitely the most remote of all the tent locations that uh, was also the only one that had a blocked view from the counselor's tent as i've mentioned and a campfire pit was located uh, behind the kitchen shower building, which is here, and and uh, towards the latrine. Um, and so there's trails that run all through here. And what you don't see is that there's trees. There's trees all through this area um, around camp. 
and even some within camp. So, you know, there, there's trees around the campfire, there's trees around here. So that's kind of the part that you don't see, um, but it's definitely there. Um, Aaron, if you would bring up um, our next photo, and I'll, I want to bring up A5 if you can, please. So as you can see, we're not talking about trees that are 100 years old, Dennis. We're talking about trees that are fairly young, um, but thin and thick. Yes. And as you can see, these branches are low. And what that tells me is that unless you're on the trail, if you're trying to walk through thick, young trees like that, you're going to be snapping branches off. You're going to be making noise. You can see the leaf litter that's on the ground um, that that's going to cause noise. These leaves are, are, are long dead and dried up. Um, but there was a rain that night. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but this is uh, tent eight. Uh, this is what it looked like on, um, June 13th and June 14th, uh, when they started taking photos. Now, one of the things that, um, I noticed about the tents immediately is that it's a it's a raised platform it's not on the ground right they were all on platforms they were all on platforms and as you can see some of them had two three steps some had one step so they all varied just a little bit but they were all pretty much the same size um i've got in the notes here on the actual tents themselves that uh, they were made out of a heavy canvas and anyone who's ever spent time in the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, you've dealt with these tents before. Um, if you've been in the military, you've definitely dealt with these tents as well. Um, they do have a cover over the top, which is to help protect it from the rain because this canvas, it can get soaked, it can get wet, and uh, if you're in there during that, it's gonna be fairly miserable for you. Um, so this is what the tent looked like, and as Dennis, as you can see, fairly easy access into that tent yes now is there anything that stands out to you about about what you see there no it's pretty basic um scouting tent from that time frame um even though and one other thing even though you have these smaller thinner trees uh and you have leaves on the ground which if it hadn't been raining you know, you would think, well, they're going to make noise. Right. But then you had all of that activity also going on in the camp with girls screaming, um, yeah. running back and forth, making a lot of noise. So it still could be, even if it hadn't been raining, conceivable, somebody could come up through there without actually being heard. Right. And there's a lot of space in between. Yes. Um, you know, they're not just stacked right on top of one another. It's a pretty good distance between tents. And um, each tent held four cots. Um, tent eight uh, only had three occupants. Now, there is a report that there was a girl who was removed from this tent earlier and, and taken to another tent. Um, some of that's been discussed as to whether or not that truly happened. Um, she claims that it does. And I'm sure you can find her story online. But um, what we know for sure is that uh, when the killer arrived, there were three girls in the tent, and that and that's it. Um, the uh, another part of of this campground area is that um, 
the night of June 12th and the, into the early morning hours of June 13th, uh, the camp was a buzz. There was excitement from the girls. Um, the counselors had to tell them numerous times, girls, let's settle down. In fact, um, this goes on for a while. Yes. And it was kind of known that on that first night, they would be allowed to kind of run around and prank each other. And, you know, I mean, I, I can just imagine running up to the tent and going, ah, you know, just, you know, playing around and sure. doing that kind of thing. And, and and so that that was going on. And the girls were talking and laughing and getting to know one another and getting to know their new their new tent mates. And so, yeah, there's definitely some racket going on, yes. right? I mean, there's some noise. Um, a lot of laughing, a lot of screaming, a lot of talking, a lot of giggling. Um, that's that's just camp. That's just the first night of camp. The girls were also told, go ahead and write your first letter home. And uh, the girls took the opportunity to do that. And, of course, you can find Denise Milner's letter home, which is gut-wrenching because she so desperately wants to go home. And um, if you could rewrite the story, I think you would have her go to the counselor's uh, tent and call home or, or go to the yes. uh, camp director's house and call home. But um, in addition to all of that that was going on there, Brad, uh, I remember reading somewhere uh, about the, it was mentioned about all the noise from the cicadas and other insects in right. that area. And if you, I know from my own backyard, those cicadas can create quite a noise. Right. Yeah. And it's a great point because it just adds to what's going on. And yeah. the cicadas don't know what time of night it is. They right. don't know if it's midnight or one o'clock or four o'clock in the morning. They're just, they're doing their thing. So, and in, in, in an area like this, you're also going to get frogs. You're going to get crickets. You're going to get all kinds of things making noise. And Oh, by the way, who knows what's going to pass through camp in the middle of the night? Yes. You might get a raccoon or a possum or, you know, who knows what. So a lot of things go on that you probably are not going to see with the naked eye as uh, night falls and everything starts to uh, come to life. Um, that night there was a storm, and that storm added to the noise factor. Um you know, when you've got rain hitting these tents, it's it's going to get loud. It does get loud. Um, so as the night progressed, um, the girls were uh, served dinner in the dining hall around 6 p.m. It's about when the storm started to hit camp. So the counselors had a little uh, sing-along on the porch, and it was something that they always did. They were always singing songs from everything that I've read. And... Um, once the rain let up a little bit, the girls were escorted back to their tents and told to change into some dry clothes because they still had some plans for them. They weren't just going to turn it in at, 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 at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock. They still had things they wanted to do. Yes. So the rain lets up, and around somewhere around 8 p.m., um, the three counselors that are here, Carla Wilhite, uh, D. Elder, and Susan Emery, uh, they, they decide to have a unit meeting with the girls. And I would imagine three three counselors who don't know the girls, you need to get to know your kids. Sure. Because you're going to spend some time with them, and you're going to help them get over some of that homesickness and 
you know, let's have a meeting. Right? Absolutely. And it helps the girls get to know the counselors. And they get more comfortable. Yeah. And so yes. if there's a problem, they know who to go to. And Plus, they got to cover some rules. Right. There's going to be some rules at camp. Um, so so D. Elder had gone to uh, retrieve some cookies. Uh, of course, you know, what are the Girl Scouts famous for? Cookies. cookies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she had gone to retrieve some cookies. And uh, the meeting took place in the Great Hall, and they discussed camp life, some of the rules. Um, they even elected uh, some kids to be their camp representative at the camp council. Um, once that business was settled, they opened up the cookies and, and, and um, started eating their cookies, uh, cookies and milk. Um, Carla Wilhite testified that uh, she believed Denise Milner was one of the girls who volunteered to help pass out the cookies. Um, just a little fact there that, that came out in court. Um, Carla Wilhite testified that around 9 p.m., the girls were sent to bed. Um, the elder was uh, what they call sitting hill. And sitting hill means that for a time, the elder is in charge of camp, and the other two counselors have some time off, basically. Um, so she's sitting hill, and uh, Carla and Susan went off to enjoy a little time off and kind of wind down, a very busy day, uh, wind down a little bit, and then go off to another camp and visit some of their friends and, and, and do that kind of thing. And that's what happened. Um, Susan went to the staff house while Carla stopped by the staff house for a little bit on her way to the Arapaho unit to spend a little time with some friends, and Carla Wilhite testified that she returned to camp around 11 p.m. Um, Michelle Hoffman, who we've already mentioned once, was the 15-year-old girl who met Denise Milner on the bus, um, checked in. She checked in on Denise um, before she settled in and saw that Denise and her tent mates were getting along very nicely. So it's not like no one's around. Right? Right. I mean, there's a counselor around. There's other people coming into camp. There's activity. There's activity. And if you are watching this camp from afar, you're seeing this. Yes. I mean, you, you, you can see the flashlights moving, even if it is 11 o'clock at night. You, you see the movement, and you know that something's still going sure. on in camp. Um, and that's, I think, very important because our timeline when when these crimes occur – it's much later. It's in the very early morning hours, you know, three to five p or three to five a.m. I think is the, the the general consensus on on when this all takes place. Um, under oath, camp counselor Deanne Elder said that between ten and ten thirty, she personally checked every tent and talked to every child. Um, and that's an undertaking. You got twenty seven kids. You got seven different tents. You've got to work through. That's, that's going to take a little bit of time. That is. So she personally checks every child, and her reasoning was, quote, my experience as a counselor and a camper, it's a really good policy just to see if any children were homesick or if every camper was warm, had enough blankets, make sure everybody was okay. To me, that sounds like a responsible counselor. Yes. Um, I don't know what else she could have done, Dennis. At that point. Well, at that point, you couldn't. Yeah. Just make sure everybody's safe, comfortable, not having any kind of issues. Right. And it's, and it's you know, it, it's getting close to 11 o'clock at night. 
some of the girls have probably started to wind down a little bit. Some aren't, and that's that's human nature, right? Right. You, right. You're going to get all types. Um, Elder said that she would um, count the tents, and um, she would count one through seven, not counting the counselor's tent. Uh, she admitted under oath that she yelled from her tent at one point for all the girls to quiet down. That was a common thing to do. I mean, it's you know, girls be quiet kind of thing. Um, you you at some point you are you are in charge of camp and you've got to keep it under control. Yeah, got to have some rules. Right. Um, around 11:30 uh, p.m. the night of June 12th, one of the counselors assigned to uh, Camp Kiowa went to quiet down a couple of the tents where the girls were making noise. Um, we know now that uh, that was Carla Wilhite. Um, this would make sense, and this is just a note for me. Uh, according to Susie's account, uh, they were quiet and could hear other girls in other tents making noise. The same counselor got up again shortly after midnight. The girls from tent two had all gone to the bathroom together and were making a lot of noise. So the bathroom door had a tendency to slam shut and they had lids and they're slamming lids shut. And so there's a lot of noise emanating from the latrine at that point. Um, that type of noise obviously is um, gonna scare away an animal probably. But if you're a predator, you're a killer out there in the woods and you're watching camp, you're definitely paying attention to that. Absolutely. So at this point, um, they're told to settle down. She escorts them back uh, to their tent. Uh, Carla Wilhite did say under oath that she walked by uh, tents seven and eight uh, during this time. The previous statement was from Elder um, stating that that she did not. So there was a little bit of a conflict there as to what had actually happened. This testimony is being given a year later, basically. Yeah, yeah, you're trying to go back over a long period of time and, and remember exactly what you did. And, and, and that's, given the circumstances of what happened, um, that's going to, um, you're going to try to remember, but it, it's a situation that I'm sure uh, definitely had an effect on those counselors. Oh, yeah. So, you know, w w what's been your experience, Dennis, when, when you have... You have, you, have, you have a crime that occurs, and you're going to get statements as quickly as possible, right? Yes. So those statements are very important because it's so fresh. Yes. But what happens when you get into court a year later, and you're having to try and remember that? Do, do they go back and read their statements to kind of refresh their memory, or do they have to give it again as if it just happened? Uh, sometimes they will, they will read their statements. You know, the district attorney will let them read their statements yeah. or, um, but even, even so a year later, uh, things aren't as fresh as they are. And that's why it's so important that you have to start immediately what leads you have, start getting those leads together and start working on those leads, getting statements and things like that while everything's fresh in people's minds. And it's difficult to try to remember every single little detail. Yes. Because in a situation like this where it's so traumatic, 
your brain is probably going to try and block some of it out just to protect you, just to protect yourself from the memory of it. Yeah. Right? Yes, because it's not something that you see all the time, and especially those people that were working there and trying to remember after all of this has happened is going to be difficult. But that's why it's so important to the best you can to get those statements and get the things documented that you can get documented that are fresh in people's minds. Yeah, and I would imagine that for them, um, it happening in their camp, the most traumatic thing that they've ever experienced in their life, obviously, especially at that young age, because they were all teenagers. Yes. And then who knows how many times you've replayed that in your mind or how many times you've gone back and tried to tried to remember exactly the steps you took or exactly what happened or exactly what time it was. And sometimes if you do that enough, you can shuffle it around yourself. Yes. But it's also important that while you may interview these people uh, or whoever you're talking to in relation to this crime and trying to document it and documenting what they're saying, something could happen further down the line that you have to go back. Yeah. And you have to try to go back over the things because new information has come up and you're, you're going to try to have to verify that. Right. So as the night wears on, and we're getting closer and closer to June 13th. Um, we, we, we enter a phase where we know somebody's out there at this point. We know somebody's watching camp. Um, maybe it's one person, maybe it's more, but we don't know. Right. And it's just a matter of time at this point. It's just a matter of time before the killer's going to show up and he's going to take the lives of three young girls. Yes. At this point, um, there's some reports that some noise is heard by the road. Um, it's investigated, and uh, some grunt, groaning kind of sounds were made. Thought it was an animal. Goes back to the tent. That was from a counselor. Um, also... Um, Around 1.30 a.m., so now we're into June 13th, 1.30 a.m., um, girls from Tent 4 were still making some noise. Now, these girls were going, right? <laughs> it's 1.30 in the morning, and they're still they're still going. They're excited. Oh, they're excited. They've had their cookies. They've uh, got their sugar up, and, and, uh, and they're going. And um, Carla White, uh, uh, Will Height, I'm sorry, Carla Will Height, counselor from earlier, got up made her way over to uh, what we call Tent 5, passing Tents 7 and 8, which is which is kind of odd, Aaron, and I don't know if you can bring up the um, the other shot of inside Kiowa Camp, uh, the uh, the black one with the white, white tents in it. But um, in order to do that, Dennis, if you're down here and 5 is the one making noise, I guess the trail just kind of led her that direction and walked around. I'm not real sure on the trail layout so again this is one of those things where don't get upset with me i'm, I'm trying to figure it out and according to her testimony uh, she said under oath that she did walk by tents seven and eight on her way to tent five um yeah on her way to uh what she calls four we call five um so that's an interesting path. Not that there's 
anything wrong with that, but it certainly gives us an idea that there was still some activity going on inside camp at 1.30 in the morning. These girls are still awake, obviously. Yes. Counselors are still having to get up and make a patrol and go talk to people. So even if there's somebody waiting somewhere, um, they're still seeing flashlight activity. They're still hearing noise. They know people are awake. So now we're going to move forward into um, some testimony that uh, Carla gave under oath um, about this series of events here. She said tent five started, get, she said four, we call it five. I explained that. Um, she said um, tent five started giggling. About the same time I heard this noise over by the fence across the road from the staff tent, which would be this direction, so towards me down here. Um, she said that uh, Dee woke up and asked if she had heard a noise. She said, yeah. Um, I asked her, well, do you know what it is? And she said, no. I guess it's an animal. Um, Carla says, I'll go over and check before I, I get to tent five. So she puts on her tennis shoes and she walks over towards the road by the fence. She says, I got over there and the noise stopped. I flashed my light into it. And so I started walking back away from and it started again. So I went back over and started to go over towards the fence and I decided it was an animal because it sounded like it sounded like it didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before and it didn't, you know, sound, you know, I don't know, but anyway, so I went and I got in onto tent 5 and I came back. So what she's saying is she got down here Dennis and didn't know what that was. Right. And who knows? Yeah, it could have could have been an animal. It could have been a predator in the woods. Yeah, it could have been just about anything. And, yeah. and that's that's a question that will probably never be answered. Right. Um, and we can't just assume, well, that was the killer. Or, you know, well, it, it, I've it, even it heard could this. It could or it couldn't be. I've even heard this, that the killer was a skinwalker shape-shifting into different animals and that was that was the killer look there's all kinds of stories with this so we'll just take it with a grain of salt but for us here right now it we could have been anything yeah so carla testified under oath that this all occurred around 1 30 as we've said and her next memory from that night is at 6 a.m. when her wind-up alarm clock goes off. So from making it back around 1.30 in the morning into her, into the counselor's tent with Dee and Susan, she's out. Goes to bed, she's out. Her next memory is 6 a.m. when her alarm goes off. Um, that that right there tells me that you're tired, you're racked out, you're asleep, you're sleeping hard because you're so tired. It's 1.30 in the morning and you're still, you're still getting on to some of, the, some of the girls and you're just out and you're not going to hear a thing. Um, we've all been there for sure. Um, going, going back to the tent real quick, I do want to mention this. Um, the 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 floor itself we, we've talked about it being an elevated floor 
Um, but we know that that wooden decks and flooring and things like that, these are just nailed together and they make noise. Yes. Like when you're walking around yeah. on this, yeah. it's going to make noise. Yeah. And you can see from the size of it, it's no problem for four adults to fit in that thing. No, and not at all. And you've got three small girls that are that are occupying this space. There's a lot of room in there is my point. There is. And you got to also remember if it's it's storming and those tents get loud when that rain's hitting on top of those yeah. tents. Yeah. And uh, I I spoke to and I've interviewed uh uh individual who was in tent 7 and she said that the rain was kind of pooling along the bottom edge and 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 the wind was kind of blowing it in and so it started to get their tent started to get wet so they kind of scooted away from the edges of the mm -hmm. of the tent you know to kind of stay dry but, sure um as as night wears on and you're asleep you're asleep you're out right now um the counselors and and a lot of people would untie their flap so that this was covered but not tied yes so your flaps would be down but it's not tied and and so it's uh you know still easier access i mean just to move a flap and and get in so 6 a.m carla will heights um alarm goes off and um and what time did we start can you tell me six okay so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get going here um Carla Wilhite's alarm goes off. She gets up. She's going to go shower. she got her whole morning plan. She's going to go shower, get ready for the girls. D, um, Elder, she hears the alarm go off, and um, it wakes her up as well. Now, shortly after 6 a.m., Carla White leaves the counselor's tent, uh, turns left, uh, walks down Kiowa Road, and in a short time, Carla was yelling at Deanne Elder and Susan Emery to wake up and count the kids. By Carla's admission, she wasn't really sure what she was seeing in the road. She just knew that it wasn't good. Yes. Um, Elder immediately gets dressed. Uh, Carla told her there was something in the road and they needed to count the kids. Carla, and Aaron, if you would go back to the camp slide, please. Carla starts with this tent closest to them. Now, they're down here by the road, and she starts with this tent here closest to the counselor's tent. And D, thinking, well, we'll meet in the middle, runs to tent eight. So they split up. Carla's at one or two what we call two and d elder is at tent eight um at that point carla starts counting and uh, elder runs to tent eight and uh her testimony is that um she gets to the tent i opened the tent i went on the steps and i opened the tent flap and i saw that there were no children in it and there was no sleeping bags in there. And I called for other counselors, and she said that there was no kids in there. So she gets to the tent, Dennis, opens it. What is she looking for? She's not looking for a crime scene. She's looking for girls. She's looking through, yes, she's looking through three people there in their sleeping bags inside that tent. And they're not there. 
they're not there. So obviously something's taking place now. Um, kids are kids are kids. Maybe they went and spent the night in someone else's tent. Maybe they got homesick and went somewhere. It, who knows? Which is probably what she thought because when she she's not when she get opens the tent and doesn't see anything, she's not thinking about something horrific has happened here. She's thinking those kids are in some other tent. Yeah. So the other two counselors, um, Carla and Susan, run over, and uh, this is this is Dee's testimony. Uh, we stood there for a moment trying to figure out where the children might be. We noticed that there were no sleeping bags and there were no mattress coverings, and there was some blood. We all started counting kids. Elder continued to give a description of what she saw inside the tent. Quote, when I opened the tent flaps, all the flaps were down, so it was really dark. Now, 6 a.m., even in early June, is still, it's not well lit. No. And it's, a dar it's, it's dark, dark inside there. There's no light. Um, she says, all I could see was like there was, like I could see this in the front, this empty bed, and this empty bed. I could not see any other clothes in that tent. Upon being asked by the prosecuting attorney with regard to the blood that you saw there and the turmoil that you certainly were in, do you have a guess as to what you were observing? What did you think? And, and D, uh, D. Elder says, we didn't think that anything had happened other than the children might have gotten into another tent. And we stood there and talking about that they were probably in another tent. We didn't think anything drastic had happened. So again, um, even though there's blood on the scene, Dee's thought is, well, they're in another tent. Another tent, and maybe somebody's had a nosebleed or something like that. They're not thinking now, what happened. This, and and, and uh, since you've been around a lot of victims, um, and you've been around a lot of people who were uh, related to or with a victim, could that be just wishful thinking? Could she had actually maybe had seen this the scenario and the blood and thought, no way, no way this is happening right now? Well, I think that's entirely possible, but she's probably not able to process that. She's thinking, she's not wanting to think something bad happened. She's thinking, even though what she's looking at in in. She just can't process that anything bad could have happened, that those the girls just have to be in another tent. Yeah. So Elder continues, we, we talked about maybe a nosebleed, like you mentioned. Uh, we couldn't see in the tent very much. We didn't see how much there was, and she's talking about the blood. Uh, she continued counting kids three or four at a time. Carla left. Um, Susan Emery, the third counselor, screams at this point now carla's back down in this area and susan has followed her and just something else brad about she sees it's really dark in those tents yes. so you may see some blood but you may not be able to tell how much blood you're looking at there mm -hmm. because it's so dark in there right right it's a good point so um i want to get to carla's testimony because it's a little more involved and i know we're already we're already pressed for time um, but I, but I want to include this for you because I think it's important to remember that these are three teenage girls who have woken up from a dead sleep 
and are now having to deal with they don't know what. Yes. They just know that the worst case scenario has just happened to them, and that's they've lost three kids. Right. And they have no idea where they're at. Um, Carla, and this is going to go back to Carla Will Heights alarm clock going off. So we're going to backtrack just a little bit. Um, Carla says, quote, well, I put on my glasses and I got out of bed and I shook my tennis shoes out and I grabbed my flashlight. Why do you shake your shoes out when you're camping? Who knows what, what crawled, crawled in there, in there at, night. at night? Exactly. She put her shoes on. Uh, it was dark in the tent, but there was light outside. But it was dark in the tent because all the tent flaps were down except for the front. Um, she says, I turned on my light. I got a towel out of my trunk and whatever else I needed. I put my flashlight down and I walked out of the tent and started walking up the same path out to the road and out towards the staff house. I walked out of the tent and around and started walking down the road and I saw these sleeping bags in the fork. I just saw sleeping bags and I thought at some time, maybe during the night, during my time off, Ben, one of the camp workers, had delivered some more luggage. Now what they did with the luggage is they dropped it off at the camps and then they went and picked up their luggage and so she's thinking oh we simply have extra luggage here um, that was dropped off by the road um, so she continues on she thinks well maybe it fell off the truck so I this is um, Carla again so I was going to go over and pick up the sleeping bags and put them in the unit kitchen for somebody to claim and when I started walking over there I saw a body and as I got closer, I saw it was a little girl, and I couldn't say whether or not, you know, she belonged to my unit, so I didn't know, you know, who she was at that point. I just assumed she was dead because her eyes were open and her legs were spread. You know, I didn't know what happened. I thought, you know, an accident or something. So I ran back to the counselor's tent. I woke up Dee and Susan. And I told her that we needed to count the kids because I'd found a body on the road. Now, this is a little different than what we had heard from Dee. Um, Dee's account was she screamed, go count the kids, and she really wasn't sure why. That could just be Dee not remembering. Yes. Simply remembering. Yes. You know, because she's, she's in bed, asleep. So the alarm clock wakes her up. But I would imagine she's trying to grab five minutes and just closed her eyes again. You know? Sure. Um, so she was told we need to count the kids, and uh, D starts with tent eight, and um, Carla started with tent two, and they worked their way through the unit. Carla said um, that she physically touched each bed to make sure there was a camper as she went through the camp checking the tents. Which was a smart thing to do. Absolutely. So uh, Carla says that she got... So this is, this is Carla's tent here. So this would be one, two, three, right here. Four. Carla says, so I got to about tent four, and D comes running over and says, well, there's nobody in tent eight. There's blood. And so I said, well, we've got to go ahead and count because they might be sleeping in somebody else's tent. Dennis, they're still hoping that they're going to find them in another tent. Well, sure. Carla's but, seen a body, but her mind is not wanting to accept that. And, and right. she's saying, 
we still got to check every tent, find every girl. Maybe we'll find them. Yes. I can't imagine. No. I can't imagine it. So they go on to uh, continue checking. So I counted, and this is Carly again. So I counted down to tent seven, and then I went over to tent eight. I parted the front flaps and looked in, and I saw blood on the corner of the mattress and some stuff all over the floor. But there weren't any sleeping bags in it or kids. I thought maybe one of the kids started her period. Again, trying to rationalize all this, right? Trying to figure out, is is it simply a nosebleed or is it simply a girl starting her period? Right. Could that be the answer? Because that can't be the answer, what I saw. You don't want it to be the answer. No, absolutely not. Carla instructs Dee and Susan to stay at camp and to not let the kids get out of their tents. Very important, right? Yes. Because this is a crime scene. Yeah. And what happens? And it's not something the other girls need to see anyway. They don't need to see it. But what happens if you've got 24 girls running around? Well, you contaminate the crime scene. Absolutely. At that time, Carla ran up the road to notify Barbara Day, who was the um, camp director, and to go find the nurse. Another important point, what if she's not dead? What if she is alive, right? And obviously there's blood, and obviously somebody needs some help. She notified the nurse, Marianne Alabac, uh, first. So she goes to the nurse first. Um, She said, she told the nurse, There's a body down in the fork in the road. The nurse grabbed her car keys and her stuff and left. By then, Carla had gone over to Barbara Day and Richard Day. Barbara was the camp director. And notifying the nurse was the appropriate thing to do at that point. And they're that direction, by the way. Because that's your medical person that's on staff there. Yeah. And, and, And that's who you want there immediately. Absolutely. So she says that uh, by the time that they get back down to camp, um, Nurse Alabac uh, told them that um, there's a body, obviously. Uh, Richard's, uh, Richard Day and um, Barbara Day, they all go over to where, where um, we now know as Denise Milner. And um, Barbara immediately says, you know, we've got to call, we've got to get the police here. Um, there's obviously something that's gone majorly wrong. Carla ran uh, up to the Arapaho tribe to enlist the help of a friend because she was instructed to get the girls out of camp and get them somewhere else. So the girls that are still in camp, um, Barbara wants the girls removed from camp, get them out of there, get them to another camp. So she goes over to the Arapaho tribe where she had one of, uh, she had a friend um, that was a counselor in that camp and she enlisted her help to come, come back and help her. Um, Carla, uh, it was reported that she had changed shirts. I don't know if that's factual or not. We'll leave it at that. Um, and so they begin to, to try and round the kids up and get them, get them moved. Um, so this is a this is now a very chaotic scene as richard day barbara's husband is looking at the scene they're realizing this is a this is the worst case scenario possible yes and they are having to um 
figure out and determine what is going on and is anyone else hurt? And then they discovered that within the sleeping bags there are two other bodies. Um, Can you go back to that other picture? You also, you when you now know what's happened, you kind of determine what has happened. You also have a huge crime scene here. Yes, this is a, this is a major because area. You're, you're talking from here all the way over to, to here. here. Yes. And one thing that's always bothered me, and, and, and this is just going to be pure speculation because we have no way of knowing, right? We just don't, we just don't know, is why move them? I mean, by all accounts, um, two were bludgeoned to death inside the tent, um, bound. Um, Denise Miller was gagged. Um, they were all moved to this location. Now, this is a road. The only reason that I can think of to move them 150 yards in there, and you can bring up that other slide, um, I believe it's A8, um, to move them this distance, Dennis, from tent 8 down to this location down here, right, it's a good ways. That's a... That's a it it's is more a, than a football field. Is a, it is a good ways. And and it's always bothered me that the killer felt the need to move the bodies. Why? Where, where are you taking them? Why? And the only thing that I can rationalize is that there's a road here. Now, the, the road's gated, but can you go back to that other one, please? The, the road's gated, um, but... Would you would you put them in a car? Would you take them? Would you? Did you want them to be found first thing in the morning? Is that the point? They didn't run away from you. We we we, pre we pretty much know that. Right. No, they wouldn't. They would have been too afraid to run away. And you can see the little trails all through here. These are all little trails, right? And you can see that there's trees everywhere. Even to get to the latrine where the counselors heard these doors slamming shut, this is a good distance away. It is. And and to to have the murders happen and then to move the bodies, it's just, just it's just another one of those questions that and why he moved them would be just you'd have to speculate on his mindset or her mindset, whoever who, we're talking about. Who knows, right? Who knows? I mean it, it, it's it's gonna it, it's one of those questions we won't have answers for. We may never have an answer for that question. Why Why move the bodies? There's a road. Okay, are you trying to move them somewhere else? Or do you want them to be found as soon as possible? And uh, maybe it's that. Maybe, maybe the killer wanted them found early, early on in the day and not 7 o'clock or, you know, whenever the girls are, they sound a bell to wake everybody up and, Maybe it's for some, effect, you know, who knows? We can't, we can't speak. All this movement that's now taking place in this area is contaminating the crime scene because you've got so many, such, such movement in that area. Yeah. And, and, but it's not, it's not contamination that's on purpose. No, I mean, no, it's it, not being done on purpose. Right, it's just... It's just the end result is now you have a crime scene that's been contaminated. Yep, yep. 
So, you know, there's a lot to this case, Dennis, and, and, and you know, as someone who's been an investigator and someone who's investigated um, cases that we can't, I can't even discuss some of the cases with this guy, who, some of the stuff he's investigated, because they're still active. They're still active cases. He can talk about this one because he wasn't even in Oklahoma in 1977, and he's never been part of this investigation. So just looking at the scene, um, here's what we know. Barbara Day was there. Richard Day was there. Marianne Alabac was there. The three counselors were there. This is at six, just a little after 6 o'clock in the morning. There's already six people on site. Then Carla goes to get another friend from Arapahoe, that's seven. Then you get a, a, a law enforcement showing up. There's a lot of people that's going to be arriving on this scene in a short amount of time. Yes. Um, just to give you a quick timeline, uh, Barbara Day phones the Howie Patrol. Uh, she gets Officer Harold Berry. Harold Berry shows up. Um, Richard Day places a sleeping bag over Denise Milner. He's touching the crime scene. Um, he also checked the other sleeping bags. Um, Sheriff Glenn uh, Weaver arrives on scene somewhere between 7.30 and 8. Uh, Weaver requests help from the OSBI. When that call comes in, Dennis, and you're at the OSBI and you get this call, how do you determine who's going to go take this call? Is there someone just on call or is there like an area that people are responsible for? No. As a, uh, depending on the area, you may have agents living in that area. Or, but as a supervisor, your responsibility is to send out there who you think needs to go out there. Now, you could have an agent living in that area, but they could not be available. They yeah. could be on right. sick leave. They could be in they court. Could, they, they could be could, in Hawaii. Who yeah, knows? yeah. So it's, as a supervisor, you determine who you want to go out there. Uh, and, and that's who you notify and, and roll out there. Well, I think we need to give uh, Officer Barry some credit here because he's the first on the scene, and by all accounts, he is adamant that people stay away from the bodies and that people stay away from or, or get out of camp as much as possible. Absolutely. To preserve the scene, right? We do know that the FBI is called in. We do know that they take um, pieces of the tent as well as some of the floor that had uh, blood on it, had a boot print or a shoe print on it. Um, there are some prints in the mud that's outside of the tent that they also um, photographed. Um, Barry, uh, Officer Barry, said that he could only see one set of boot prints from the campsite to the dump site. And I hate that word, dump site, but that's what... That's what he called it. Um, so he's saying, and I would imagine he's, you know, he's from Oklahoma. He's been in the woods quite a bit, I'm sure. He's saying that he only noticed one set of prints uh, leading from tent eight to where the bodies were found. Significant? Yes. I mean... He's there. He's he's reporting what he's seen. He's only seen one set of of prints. He later that uh, would that would indicate that that there's probably you're only looking for one person, but you don't know that yet. Right. He did later say that um, 
the scene was not perfectly secure um, during all of this, and the, there was it was necessary to get people in there to get the kids moved, and those people are the counselors. Well, yeah, and it's not secure because you've got so many people moving around doing what they think needs to be done. So, and a lot of it done before the police even get there. Yeah. So it's it's already contaminated, not intentionally, right. but that's what you end up with. Um, Aaron, if you would, let's go to um, A10, please. This is a, a map of the area that was ran in the newspaper. Of course, we all know that eventually we talk about the caves and where potential suspects were hiding. As you can see, Camp Scott is here, Boy Scout Camp here, here, Cave 1, Cave 2, and Cave 3. Um, this house had been broken into, items had been stolen, duct tape or tape that matched, uh, some rope, uh, some beer bottles. Um, obviously, these these areas, Dennis, I mean, I would think that's a perfect place to hide out. It is. It is. And, and those wooded areas like that, even without the caves, I mean, I've worked on cases where the, the suspect has been in a wooded area for, you know, a week or two before you know, before he was found. So it's not unusual, uh, especially for people that might be from Oklahoma, from the area that have been in the woods a lot, know their way around the woods, Right, uh, wouldn't be unusual at all. Well, and at this point, the manhunt begins. Um, law enforcement's called in, OSBI's been called in, the Highway Patrol is aware, and now we've got the FBI on the scene. Governor Boren has been notified uh, sometime that morning, and he's offered the help of the National Guard. And the manhunt is on. And we are now trying to figure out who committed this heinous crime. Uh, Aaron, if you would, go to uh, A7. Just a couple of quick photos here for you. Um, all of these can be found online. Um, they brought in dogs, and even some people um, use their own dogs. Uh, the two dogs that were brought in were German, two, two were German Shepherds, one was a Rottweiler. Uh, these are obviously not those types of dogs. But again, um, plenty of people, just everyday citizens, wanted to come out and help. And they wanted to come out and, and, and uh, be on, on this case to try and help find whoever did this. Erin, um, if you would go to um, A9, please. So this is another map. Um, and, and we've seen this one already, but what I, what I wanted to show you was, um, you know, this is a good amount of distance here and, and what gets lost and Aaron, if you would pull up, uh, a one, one more time for me. And this is, this is the last one we're going to, we're going to show. We're talking about Kiowa camp and just this general area. But as soon as we get a one up, you can see, this is what we're talking about right here. This is a large area. This is a lot of people. That is a lot of people. This is a big area. And for someone now, you know, the caves are situated through this this area here. But this this kind of puts some scale to it in a way so that you can understand that there's a lot of kids running around. And if you're a predator, if you're a killer, it's um unfortunately it's easy pickings. Yes. Um, the news breaks in Tulsa. This is another tragic piece of this story. The news is breaking around 8 a.m. Um, that there's been uh, a murder or murders at Camp Scott in Locust Grove. Uh, the details 
um, were, were, were thin, to say the least. Uh, it was just relayed that three girls were killed at Camp Scott. Very soon, Girl Scout headquarters is teeming with parents and reporters trying to find out what's going on. Eventually, the girls get loaded onto Greyhound buses and sent back to Tulsa where their parents awaited their arrivals sometime near 2.15 in the afternoon. Three buses entered the lot and they began unloading. Um, the girls were never told why they were leaving camp and going back to Tulsa. They'd been there a night. They had spent the night. Now they're being loaded up on buses and shipped back home. No speculation, no idea why. They're young. They, they may have just assumed it was a field trip somewhere or who knows what. Um, the One of the more tragic parts of this, besides the actual murders themselves, obviously, is that the parents were not notified as to who had died. So there were parents waiting on the bus as they arrived, wondering if their kid was going to get off the bus or not. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a tragic situation, and, you know, not... I'm not going to try to second guess, you know, what was done out there. I wasn't out there. I wasn't a part of it. So I don't know what all was going on, but um, I would have thought that once they had determined who the victims were, that law enforcement personnel would have been dispatched to those, those the homes of those families to right. notify them. Right. So... As we, as the day progresses, um, the manhunt is on, and um, the FBI is called in. As we've mentioned, um, on June 14th, the next day, the wooden floor in tent eight is airlifted to a crime lab. Uh, evidence showed that there was blood all over the floor and that it had been wiped up. Why the wiping? The only thing I could consider was to cover shoe prints. That's yeah. the only thing I could think of. Oh, yeah. It, um, but who it, knows? It's just a guess. Who knows? Yeah. Um, and it was used, they used towels and a mattress cover, the mattress covers to, to, to do that, to do the wiping. Um, prints were also found in blood, indicated that, it, that there was a tennis shoe. Another print was found outside the tent. Investigators were possibly looking for more than one killer at this point. They had no idea. They didn't know if this was one person, three people. They, they, they didn't know what they were dealing with. Other evidence that was found on the scene were fingerprints found on the bodies, a flashlight, uh, duct tape, piece of cord. Um, we, we later learned that the house was broken into and several items were stolen that matched what was there. They also found items in the cave that matched what was there. Um, a large manhunt is on and uh, law enforcement officials, volunteers, tracking dogs, even aircraft with like heat seeking um, signatures were used. Um, they began to scour the uh, thickly brushed area. The tracking dogs came in from Pennsylvania. Um, they even called them the Wonder Dogs. Um, that's what they were called because they were so good at their job. Um, and there's a report that a medicine man puts a hex on the dogs, and sure enough, before they can all three get back to Pennsylvania, two of the dogs are dead. Um, the dogs started searching on June 16th, so they arrived three days after the fact. And... Um, there were several eyeglasses found, usually women's glasses, 
Um, for nine days, they searched, uh, turning up nothing. The investigation began to drag on. Um, there's so much about this case, Dennis, that we could do this every day for two weeks sure. and, and still not probably cover everything. Um, as a former investigator, as a former OSBI agent, um, what, what do you think uh, was going through the mind of the agents as they arrive on the scene? And, and, and what, what's the main focus at that point? Well, I, I'm sure it was, uh, it, was a real, it was a real blow to them. Anytime it's involving children, it's, it's extremely difficult to work those kind of cases where there's children involved. But what you have to do as an investigator, when you arrive on scene, you have to emotionally withdraw from that case. You have to, because you can't let it, if you get emotionally involved in a case, it can cloud your judgment. Right. So you have to remove yourself from the, the emotions of that case. As hard as that is to do, um, uh, to make sure that you stay on point and stay focused on the investigation. Sure, sure. And I can only imagine, um, it, you know, they probably have families of their own. And sure. you, you look down there and you see these little girls and you're, you're thinking, what, you know, what if this was my daughter? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, having, having gone through the schools and other cases and the things that you guys do as, as investigators, you can still be shook. You can still come across a scene and it still shake you. Absolutely. Um, I know there's some reports that afterwards, after the fact, there's a there's there's some OSBI agents that do um, retire. Um, I know that um, the sheriff uh, Gene Weaver. I know it affected him greatly, and by all accounts, and in talking to um, Sherry Farmer, Lori's mother and um, the work that she's done since for uh, victims and victims' rights and being an advocate for that. Um, she's done nothing but sing the praises of, of everyone involved, um, how they handled it from start to finish. And these kinds of cases, when you work these kinds of cases, it's something that never goes away. Right. I mean, you always, that's always in the back of your mind, those kinds of cases. Yeah. And it's still a scar on this state. Um, it's still something that newspapers cover regularly. I've pulled up many, many news articles. Um, they hit an anniversary. That, you know, all the papers do an article. They, in fact, today, um, there was an article today that uh, the case, it was from KOCO in Oklahoma City, but there was an article today that they were going to close the case. Um, after doing some reading on that, a little investigating on myself, and seeing a post that Sherry Farmer made, um, it's not the case. The case is not being closed. And uh, Dennis, you would know. You can't just you can't just say, "Well, the case is done," right? It's probably one of those cases that is always going to be there, um, no matter how much time goes on. Yeah. But the other thing that that in this case, back in 1977. As an investigator, as a law enforcement person, you didn't have the tools available to you that you exactly. have today. Get back in that 1977 yeah. mindset. Yeah, you got to go back and remember that, that, you know, there's a lot more available today than there was back then. Do they, 
do they get closer to a conviction or to catching the person if they if this is done in 2007 as opposed to 77 maybe it's hard to say yeah. not knowing what all the evidence is and, sure. or what evidence would have been obtained had you had the tools at your disposal that you have today right and if you would bring up the uh the the photo of of uh Denise Michelle and Lori one more time i think this is the best way uh, to close out tonight, to close out this broadcast, because we don't want to forget these three. Um, this this will be these images will be seared in the minds of Oklahomans forever. Absolutely. Um, I know we call it the Girl Scout murders. That's just a, a catchy name for it, like Son of Sam. You know, they got a the newspapers got to name it to to sell sell papers. Right. But um, it should be called the murder of Lori Farmer, uh, Michelle Geis, and Denise Miller. Yes. M Milner. Yeah. Um, that's what it should be called. Yes. Um, we will put links below uh, this broadcast so that you can go and see what uh, the parents of these victims have done since um, and how they are advocating for um, family members of victims who have been um, taken from their families in a, in a way that uh, should never happen. Um, we want to make sure that we don't forget these three. Um, Dennis, we're going to have you back again at some point, maybe sooner than later. We'll see. We're going to make you famous. They're, got, they're going to want more from Dennis. I'm telling you, they're uh, going to want more from you. We'll see. Um, we can't bring you on to talk about active cases, but we can right. certainly uh, bring you in to talk about some of the, some of the cases that uh, have gripped this state and uh, continue to do so today. So, um, we want to thank, um, and I personally want to thank uh, Sherry Farmer for sharing some information with me and um, talking to me. Um, I want to thank uh, the other individual who now lives out in California who gave me um, a lot of insight. Like I said, she was in Tent 7, the tent next door, and um, she wants to come back to Oklahoma and um, kind of try to close that, that chapter in her life. Um, but for some, it never closes. No. And it's going to stay open from the people who were involved to the families, of course, and um, maybe to you. You know, maybe this strikes a nerve with you, and um, we can continue to uh, mention their names and their their deaths aren't in vain for sure. That's um, right. So, Dennis Franchini, thank you for coming in. Thank, well, thank you for being you for private. having me. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to do this on a more regular basis. Aaron, our producer, is excited. He's back there. Uh, are you awake back there? Are you? Yeah, he's awake. Um, we're going to continue to do these, and we're going to put them on the YouTube channel for everybody to watch. Um, but let's, you know, let's start with this one, and let's remember uh, these three. So for Dennis uh, Francini, for uh, Aaron back there, um, I'm Brad Heath, and we appreciate you guys joining in, and, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.